the thing I push on with marketers that have worked for me is just to make sure that they respect the functions and they're curious about the functions as they move through, through their career journey. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, we sit down with Paul Chibe, who is the CEO of Ferrero North America. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you? I am doing wonderful. Well, I want to dive into your background to start because you've had a really great journey that's led you ultimately to the seat that you're in at Ferrero. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and what is the current role leading Ferrero North America? So what my career started almost 30 years ago in finance. I came out of school. I was a finance undergrad. And my very first permanent job was I was a trade spending analyst, which really gave me an insight in terms of working with sales organizations, understanding kind of how things happen with customers. And it was at a candy company called Leaf. And then I went to another role, which was I was the marketing, I was the financial analyst for the marketing organization. And in that role, I met the VP of marketing and uh, he mentioned to me one evening, I was working on something for him. He's like, I think you would be good at marketing. And uh, he asked me to uh, apply for a role. There were a couple open positions and I ended up applying for the role. And then I ended up getting my first job as an assistant marketing manager in the fine, in, in the marketing organization at Leaf. And I worked on chocolate, peace, candy, whoppers, milk duds. Uh, and another little brand called Sixlets. And then I moved into another role and I moved into another role. And then it got bought by Hershey. And then I moved into marketing roles at Quaker Oats. And then I moved into, then I went from Quaker Oats to Wrigley. And then I was at Wrigley for 11 years. You know, the first eight while it was a private or excuse me, a publicly traded company. Then the last three while it was owned by Mars. Then I went to AB InBev as the head of marketing for the United States. And then I came to Ferrero as the CEO. So diving into that a little bit more, you know, it's rare to see a finance leader move into marketing. And unfortunately, it's even more rare to see a marketing leader move into the CEO job. What is that experience of those multifunctions and particularly that marketing experience really helped inform you in your current role? Well, I think the, the very first positions when I was in finance were commercial roles. So I supported sales and I supported marketing. And I think that financial context really helped me be grounded in terms of the, the working with numbers, but also understanding that ultimately the role of a business is to generate profitability. And I think that context was always underneath all the things that I did in my career. And I think moving to a marketing role to a general management role I think the the difficulty sometimes I think is that there's a opinion that the marketers don't have the functional context to move and make that transition. And what I mean by functional context is that they they don't have the understandings of uh, understanding around supply, operations, and the industrial processes related to managing a business. And I think this is where it's important for someone in their career journey to have that openness to make sure that they're getting that exposure through curiosity, through 
respect for the functions, you build that understanding that permits you to make that transition. You know, because I think the 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 criticism always of a marketer is they worry about marketing, they're worried about issues that aren't related to management of the business or they're too pie in the sky. And for them, it's a difficult transition to run kind of the mundane parts of the business that sometimes as a marketer would criticize the you know, kind of the operational aspects of the business. And I actually think that if the marketer has the right attitude as they come along in their career, they can be quite well prepared to become the CEO. So, you know, clicking on that a little bit more, you know, in traditional CPG, kind of the world that you grew up, grew up in, you know, a lot of times you move from a marketing director into general management. You did that and then you went on to the CMO. It's rare to see that CMO switch over to the CEO because usually if you're going after that CMO job, that's the ultimate job for a lot of folks. How do you think that changes as you think about that experience you can get? And especially when you're at that executive level, switching from CMO to CEO. Well, the big part of the transition, again, becomes your responsibility set expands exponentially. You know, and I think, you know, as I move from general management to my experience at ABM Bev, what made that attractive was just the scale of the Anheuser-Busch business in the United States. It was a $15 billion business. We had a billion-dollar marketing budget. I had 400 people working for me and a large organization. And it was a the resources that AB, ABI brought enabled you to unleash your creativity in ways that you could not in many other roles. And so that really became attractive. But also, you know, I learned extraordinary amount working at ABI. I worked for a brilliant guy. His name was Louise Edmond, who uh, really helped me become much, much better at the operational understanding around the business in terms of how to run businesses. And so I think for me, that experience was quite formative in developing the capability to become a CEO, what I'm doing today, because of the discipline and rigor in which the operation was managed, even while me being in a CMO role, it helped me learn quite a bit. But in terms of the CMO moving, again, the theme I want to touch upon is is making sure that as you're moving through your career, that you're getting the appropriate exposure and contextual understanding of the functions as a marketer. And I think that there's plenty of opportunity as you work on projects that you learn things that help you become a manager, an effective leader of a business. And I think like, for example, when you work with new products, you often work with product design. A lot of what product design involves is shipping the product and you understanding and learning shipping, for example, you know, in the context of your new products role is something that later on as you're a general manager, at least you have, you know, the fundamentals of, you know, how to, how's a product palletized? What's it cost to ship a pallet? You know, all these kind of things just help you become a more informed manager than just having no context at all. And the thing I push on with marketers that have worked for me is just to make sure that they respect the functions and they're curious about the functions as they move through, through their career journey. So talking a little bit more about the, uh, the role you're in right now, you know, Ferrero, you've spent your career at these amazing brands, Wrigley, Anheuser-Busch, you know, PepsiCo, that everyone in North America in particular knows. 
Ferrero is one that maybe 10 years ago, you might have known some of the brands, but you didn't know the name in North America. You know, that was different in you know, Europe and others. But Ferrero has really been coming on the scene over the last few years with some major acquisitions and moves. Why has North America been such a prioritization for the business? Well, Ferrero is a global company. And I think one of the things that, like you said, is that in this part of the world, and we're much more developed in Canada historically than we've been here, is that we're we're an unknown player with our brands, you know, like a Tic Tac, everyone knows Tic Tacs, but people didn't know it was made by Ferrero. Or everyone knows Nutella, but they didn't know it was made by Ferrero. Or you may have had a Ferrero Rocher at the holiday, and but you weren't really connecting them to Nutella and Tic Tacs. And then we have a bunch of other brands. But Ferrero has become the second biggest chocolate company in the world. It's privately held. And, and you know, the strategic focus for us is that, you know, we are on the journey of becoming the number one player. And you can't become the number one player without having a good presence in in the United States. And I think that is something that it's not a big mystery. It's, you know, I'm not unveiling anything of uh, that wouldn't be obvious. But, you know, if for us to become the global p- player that we can be, we need to have a good and proper presence here in the United States. As you thought about that strategy, there's really been two legs to it, at least from an outside perspective. On one hand, you have the acquisition of portfolio brands like Crunch and Butterfinger. And then the other, you've brought some of your, you know, really amazing brands from Europe, like Kinder Joy and Kinder Bueno to the U.S. How have you thought about the role of each of those strategies of bringing a brand in or acquiring a brand? Well, the core of all of it is our belief in brands and also our belief in great products. And, you know, when you look at the portfolio, and I'll start with the the business we acquire from Nestle, and our perspective, you know, these brands hadn't necessarily received the proper attention that they had. Uh, should have had. And the businesses themselves were fundamentally, they're, they, you know, the crunch trademark, the Butterfinger trademark, the baby food trademark, the hundred grand trademark. These brands are great brands. There are brands that have intrinsic recognition and emotional capital with consumers in the U.S. They just haven't been tended to correctly. And I think one of the points that's unique about, you know, let's say a company like Ferrero, Ferrero is a confectionery company. We are a chocolate company. This is what we do. Whereas a, a big global conglomerate that's in multiple categories, sometimes a business like this may lose emphasis because there's other strategic priorities. And that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with Nestle. I think Nestle, Nestle we all know, is an amazing company. We probably, you know, they're the biggest food company in the world. They've been amazingly successful. But sometimes these these types of businesses prove better managed in a pure play company, and that's what we are. We are a confectionery company, and we're in this business 100%, and this is our focus. And we can put the dedicated attention and the resources on these businesses to make them successful and also take the time to make them successful that sometimes isn't uh, open to a public company. In terms of bringing the brands, the other brands here in the U.S., you know, the 
point and the truth about Ferrero is, is that in our opinion, we have the best products in the world. No one matches the quality of our products. We have an approach to product quality that is unique. I've never seen it in any of the other companies that I've worked for. The emphasis, the focus, the care, and also the executive concern that comes already all the way from the top, from our owner. So that perspective just pervades. And I just think that, you know, Americans are ready for higher quality products. And you see this mega trend present in all the food categories. You know, if you think back of what the landscape of food looked like 30 years ago, what a grocery store looked like 30 years ago, 30 years ago, there weren't sushi counters in a neighborhood grocery store. And you now, every grocery store has international food offering. There's the focus on quality. There's the focus on fresh. And when you think about what Ferrero brings to the market, our focus is on bringing in an accessible way to everyone, amazing confectionery products with the emphasis on quality, with taste profiles that are appealing. And when people do have them, they understand that they're having an accessible luxury or an accessible item that is premium. You know, so the premium of so our products play through. And I think that's where our opportunity is. Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. So when you look at that opportunity and what uh, you've been doing as you bring those to market, you know, 2020 has obviously had challenges for everyone. How have you had to adopt your business for that? Well, our big challenges and in, in, in our first and foremost is that we've been focused on our employees and making sure that the situation with our, our teams is, you know, people are protected. So we're, uh, we're considered, because we're in the food industry, an essential an essential company. So both here and in Canada. So we were, we were in production through the entire time of the COVID lockdowns that you've seen. And we've installed all sorts of protocols that uh, have in our manufacturing sites over and above the recommendations of government to protect our associates and knock on wood. We've had a very good success with keeping our employees safe and healthy. You know, when you when looking at the statistics, the other point is, is making sure that we're meeting consumer demand and consumer demand was kind of shifting around in that, you know, as consumers visited the stores less frequently, you saw, you know, some drop off in the SKUs that you might sell on the kind of at the checkout or what you would sell at, at convenience stores because people weren't commuting. You know, and if you're, you know, if a lot of people aren't commuting to the office, they're not stopping in getting coffee in the morning or they're not stopping in in the afternoon getting gas on the way home. And that sometimes that has, you know, kind of lessened the demand for the front end SKUs. But what you've seen is, is that people have increased the size of their basket 
and they're shopping for more at-home consumption, and there's been a big pickup for at-home consumption items. And I'll give the example of Nutella, where our demand increased, you know, significantly, and you know, which is good for us. It's an amazing, uh, an amazing brand, and people are buying Nutella to enjoy more at home, you know, more than they had when they were commuting to work or mating or more eating out of home occasion. Talking about that a little bit more. You guys historically have played in the the impulse and convenience in that front end side of things. How has you know things like e-commerce and also you know last mile delivery changed your go to market strategy when it comes to these spaces? Well, I think what I would say it, it hadn't changed our strategy because we were significantly interested in the space. What we've observed is is that COVID nineteen accelerated the future. And people that might not have tried at-home delivery, let's say you're the 65-year-old who has a kind of routine. They have a routine they quite enjoy going to the grocery store. You know, and I got to say, I have my routine in going to the grocery store. I love going to the grocery store and kind of looking around as I shop. Well, this person and me too, we were forced to buy online. And a lot of people, including me, had a very enjoyable experience buying online. And so what I think you're going to see in the post-COVID world is that people were forced to try at-home delivery, the slash home delivery, using either Instacart or some of these other capabilities. And this has given them a satisfactory, or very enjoyable experience. So I think you're going to see much more of a mix in behavior going into the forward into the future. I don't believe you're going to see people completely switch to online, but I also don't believe that ever again you're going to have some of these consumers that have tried these services ever switch again to completely shopping in the store. The complexity comes from the point that the cost to serve for our retailers and for our partners in this is extremely expensive. You know, and you read all these articles about the retailers not making money on these services. And I think what we'll see in the future is some sort of reconciliation of the model in terms of the costing. You know, the, the big the big retailers can't lose, you know, $10 an order going into the future for a long time. And maybe that was okay when the business was 2% of their volume, but when it gets to four, five, six, seven, eight, as as you project the trend into the future, the reconciliation has to happen. They got to make money on this transaction and there'll be some adjustments in terms of of pricing or how the delivery charges are structured, you know, but there'll be something that happens to make it a bit more realistic in terms of what it really costs to have your stuff delivered to your house. When you think about that new world that uh, we're kind of entering of that changing relationship with retail and go to market, What's the largest opportunity for marketers today? Well, I think, you know, the largest opportunity for marketers is to focus on building the connection of their brands with consumers. And I think that in focusing on developing the emotional capital, and I think that some industries or some categories are going to be tougher than others. And I think that the younger consumer has a different relationship with brands than maybe the older consumers have. And again, I'm like, I'm going on instinct here, just watching consumer behavior. So, you know, if, if folks are going to ask me to quote data, I don't have any. I'm just going on the point that 
I think that a younger consumer who is a digital native, as they're called, is much more used to going online and shopping and they're connected, their, their loyalty to brand is much less. You know, their loyalty might be to the platform they're buying from and less to the brand. And so I think that this is something that marketers are going to have to observe and pay attention to over time, because what could very well happen is, is that let's say if I'm becoming, if I'm a shopper on Amazon, what's more important to me is going to Amazon because I have my data in there. I got my prime. I'm able to have the stuff delivered to my house. And if I'm looking for an item, dish detergent, well, I'm going to buy the dish detergent that is on Amazon at a good price, not necessarily I'm going to go buy Dawn. And, um, you know, for me, I'm, I've been brand loyal to Dawn my whole life, you know, but you can see where for a younger consumer, it's more about what's, what's popping on the, on their app and what's easy for them to purchase with the app than uh, necessarily brand loyalty. So I think it's a new world. It's a new world for how brands establish a relationship with consumers. On that uh, note of kind of brand loyalty, I think it was something like nine out of 10 of the largest brands in the U.S. in particular lost market share last year with you know, upstart brands, et cetera. With that changing brand loyalty of the next generation of consumers, how do you think about that next generation of brands in the fit in the portfolio of some major brands that you already have? Well, I think that it comes to authenticity and I know that this sometimes is an overplay word, but if you think about the brands that are sourcing their volume from the big brands, there's usually you know parameters. They're local. There's an origin story of a founder who developed this business with some sort of love for that particular category, and there's a product advantage. You know, and I think one of the big things that historically has been an issue with some of the big CPG, food CPG, is that the food CPG companies in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s were focused on cost savings, not necessarily continuing to focus on creating distinct product performance advantage and quality advantage with their products. And if you think about like an Annie's Mac and Cheese comes along, it got acquired, but an Annie's Mac and Cheese comes along with a local story, a emphasis on product quality and, you know, speaks to, you know, needs and concerns of the mom, it sources a ton of volume from Kraft Mac and Cheese. And that's kind of the, if you think about the archetypal story, that's the archetypal story of a startup brand taking a lot of share from a big brand. And that's played out in all the categories out there in almost every category, I should say. But, you know, the kind of closest point the, the focus has to be, if you're buying a new product or launching a new product, or let me say, if you're launching a new product, you've got to make sure that you're hitting some of these key components. And there has to be, uh, if it comes from a big company, and I think a, a brands can come from big companies, but there has to be an authenticity of why you're entering that cap category and a truth to it. And I think a lot of times what you have is an extension of a trademark name into a new segment. There's not really a true reason for being. You're not really offering anything that's differentiated. And then it becomes a problem for the, for the product to be successful and they, and they fail. 
You mentioned earlier on um, when we were talking about the switch from CMO to CEO that getting that experience across all the functions is so important. What other aspects of you know what I call continuous beta and always changing is it important for marketers to have as they put their eye towards the CEO's seat? Well, I think there you know I kind of classify it in three buckets. I think you know first off you have to have a true curiosity. You know, it can't be that you, you, you don't care. You have to kind of have a curiosity on how these functions run. Like, wh- what do they do? What are the metrics that these functions operate against? How do they do their job? And I think that that curiosity has to be grounded for respect for the function and for the colleague. You know, and this is something that, you know, marketers get deemed a lot for being arrogant. You know, and you hear that, you know, when you have the after work dinners, you know, or drinks with folks that, you know, they're saying, oh, the marketer, this guy is arrogant or that person's arrogant. And I think that's something that marketers have to be. And maybe this isn't as true as much today, but there has to be genuine respect for the function and the colleague. And the way I describe it is, is that, you know, think about your vocation. You love marketing. You went to marketing because that you felt was a fun, exciting role. That's just as much true for the person who's going into engineering, going into supply chain, going into industrial. They love that. That's fun for them. It's exciting. You need to respect that. You got to respect the vocation that they chose and understand that what they do is just as important for the organization as what you do. And that collaboration is what is the foundation of having an organization be successful. So I think being curious about what your colleagues are doing and having a true respect and appreciation for their role and their choice of being in that role sets up the, the kind of the, the mutuality that needs to be there for you to develop a good relationship and also for you to have that open dialogue of learning that is required for you to learn. And the other point, and this is something that is absolutely critical, and we could talk about attributes of what I look for in marketers, but one that is critical in a marketer that's critical for someone becoming an executive, kind of a general management or CEO executive, is entrepreneurship, having an entrepreneurial view. And the reason I think this is critical is that an entrepreneur figures out how to get things done. They overcome barriers and obstacles. They work with issues. And if, you know, when an entrepreneur starts a business, he has it all or she has it all. And she is trying to solve problems with getting things shipped, getting things made, getting financing, how to set price. They're solving problems. And I think that a marketer should have an entrepreneurial view because that by nature, that aspect of trying to overcome problems and launching a product or building a brand gives you the context of engaging the organization. And if you have that attitude that I pointed out, gives you the really that platform for learning that makes you someone that then when the opportunity comes for you to move into general management, you have that, at least you had, you may not be an expert, but at least you have some understanding and you're able to answer, ask good questions as you are moving into these general management roles. Well, Paul, it's been such a pleasure learning about your personal journey, the advice you give to marketers, and the moves that Ferrero is making here in North America. So I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down. Well, thank you very much. I very much appreciate the invitation to talk to you this morning, and I look forward to being with you again soon. Thank you, Paul.